Hey, Bettys. Welcome to the Better Podcast. It's your host, Dr. Stephanie. It is geeky magic time where I step away from the interviews and just talk to you. It's just going to be me and you today. And these episodes, I'm going to bring you personal insights, frequently asked questions, topic du jour in a more condensed, quick, and actionable way. I go hard on the geek, wrap it up with sprinkles and magic for you to do and be better. Hey, hey, Bettys. Welcome back to Geeky Magic. We are doing another roundup, the best of 2021. And this week we are talking all about metabolism. And of course, as you may know, if you've listened to me for more than a minute, metabolism is a really big focus of interest for me. Uh, A lot of programs I've developed have been concerned around healing metabolism, particularly for females. And in these clips, you are going to hear some of the best of the best from some of the guests we've had on the Better Podcast, we are starting off with Dr. Casey Means. She is one of the co-founders of Levels, which is a continuous glucose monitoring uh, company and basically all around metabolic health, everything to do with metabolism. And in this clip, we are talking about the basics of metabolic dysregulation. So as you may or may not know, glucose, of course, is the molecule of life. This is the required substrate for every single cell in the body, including the brain. And even it's very true that we still use glucose even when we are in a state of ketosis. So we are talking about how every single cell in the body uses glucose to create energy or adenosine triphosphate, ATP for short. And if you do not have the capacity to create uh, predictable and sustainable energy, then you have uh, metabolic dysregulation. And whenever we see, uh, you know, because every single cell uses glucose in some way, whenever we see dysregulation, let's say in the ovaries, uh, in terms of their glucose uptake and energy regulation, we get PCOS. You know, if we see energy dysregulation, um, elsewhere in any other organ, we will see dysregulation relative to that organ. But the whole, the big picture idea here is that insulin dysregulation, glucose, dysregulation is going to lead to a disease state that we can name, but it all comes down really to the same etiology. And that is glucose and insulin dysregulation. So we talk about glucose molecule of life required for every single cell in the body. And when we have too much glucose, of course, we end up having too much insulin, which leads to metabolic dysfunction. And one of the things that I think is also important to highlight in terms of excess or a state of hyperinsulinemia is that insulin stops lipolysis. And what I mean by that said in more simpler terms is that it impedes the ability of your body to break down fat for use for energy making, to make that adenosine triphosphate that we were talking about. So we also, of course, can derive ATP from fatty acids, which are stored in the form of a triglyceride in the adipocyte, in the adipose tissue. And when we are in a state of hyperinsulinemia, we are not able to access our fat stores. And this is really one of the cornerstones of the Estima diet in that, uh, particularly phase one, where we we are putting you into a therapeutic nutritional state of ketosis. We are putting you in a low insulin environment. And this is going to provide an environment where we can now teach the body to go into the fat 
uh, storage depot and break down the adipocyte, break down that triglyceride into the fatty acids and the glycerol backbone, and then be able to go through the process of either making glucose, uh, because our body is so incredibly intelligent that we can create our own glucose on demand, uh, as well as using, use, utilizing those fatty acids as a substrate for ATP production. So enjoy this absolutely beautiful uh, explanation with Dr. Casey Means. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause. And mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Basically, when you eat dietary carbohydrates, you digest them and they ultimately are going to break down into glucose in the bloodstream. And glucose goes into the bloodstream. And then the body basically responds by releasing this hormone called insulin. One of the most important hormones in the body that really is relevant to every single person, no matter what their, their health goes, goals are. Um, it's an incredible hormone. Almost every single cell in the entire body, 30 trillion of them have insulin receptors. So it has a lot of functions. And the purpose of insulin is to help cells take up that glucose. And what glucose is, what this blood sugar is, is it's the fundamental metabolic substrate in our body. And what that means is that it is a a substrate that can be transformed into energy in our cells that we can actually use to power our cells. The key thing about metabolism is that every single one of our 30 trillion cells in the body, and that's just human cells. We have about, I think, I think a hundred trillion bacterial cells in our body, but human cells. So um, this is the fundamental thing about metabolism. Every single one of those 30 trillion cells needs energy to function, to do anything, to live, to do any of the functions they're supposed to do. If it's a brain cell, it needs energy to do brain stuff. If it's an ovary cell, it needs energy to do ovary stuff. But you can't just use the glucose. You have to convert it to energy that we can use, a currency we can use, which is generally called ATP. So glucose has to get into the cell, be converted to something that is a currency we can use. And when that process is going well and it's efficient and we're converting glucose properly to energy that we can use and there's not a ton of excess, we're not creating harmful byproducts, that's a well-functioning metabolism. Our cells are functioning properly. When this process is not working well and we can't get the energy we need in the cells properly or we're gumming up the cells with this excess byproduct of energy creation, we get dysfunction. We get cellular dysfunction. The cells don't work properly. And when cells don't work properly, tissues don't work properly, organs don't work properly. That's where symptoms arise. And so the reason that blood sugar and problems with blood sugar and problems with metabolism underlie almost every chronic condition we're seeing in our country, literally the nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States are related to dysfunctional blood sugar in some way. Um, 
is because this is a core pathway. It's a pathway relevant to every cell type. And really where this problem, this fundamental core problem is showing up is where symptoms you know, might emerge. If it's happening again in the ovary, it might look like polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is the leading cause of infertility in the United States, which is fundamentally a glucose problem in the ovary. If it's happening in the brain, it might look like dementia. If it's happening in the heart, it might look like heart disease. So how do we get those problems? Well, this is the interesting thing. When we eat too much glucose, you know, day in and day out, we're constantly sort of spiking our glucose because we're eating too many dietary carbohydrates. The body's tasked with producing tons and tons of insulin to get all that glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells. And what happens over time is that the cells get overwhelmed. They can't process all this glucose. And so the cells actually say, stop, like, I don't want to get more of this into the cell. So the cells become resistant to that insulin signal. So now the bodies actually have to push out more insulin to try and drive that glucose into the cells. And this is where this, the, the, you know, wheels start coming off the bus and things are problematic. Now you've got this block to both to insulin glucose can't get into the cells as efficiently glucose starts to rise in the blood. And that whole energy process, it's like there's too much of this energy substrate, but we're not using it properly. And that's a real problem. This is where metabolic dysfunction starts arising. And this is really the path towards diabetes um, and these other related conditions. The interesting thing is, you know, for many people, weight is an issue. And we've got 72% of Americans who are overweight and obese. Well, a really interesting thing about insulin is that aside from its function of essentially um, pulling glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells, its other function is to tell the body not to burn fat for energy because fat is the other way that we can generate energy in the body. It's really, we have the option of use glucose or use fat, but when glucose is around, we use that preferentially because that insulin's around saying don't use fat. So you can imagine you get into this situation where the, you've been eating a lot of carbs, which is normal in the American diet. The vast majority of our calories come from refined carbohydrates. These days, you're getting all these glucose spikes. You're getting all these insulin spikes. You start generating that insulin resistance. The body's then pumping out more insulin to try and overcome that. Now you've got high insulin levels at baseline. And what are you not going to do in that situation? Burn really any fat. So it's just this really interesting cycle that ultimately gets us really dependent um, in these high insulin states, getting dependent on burning carbohydrates for fuel. And we kind of become these like metabolic carb addicts, but we're not even doing a good job of it because we become insulin resistant. So um, it's just this really fascinating um, cycle. And this is why focusing on our blood sugar levels and making sure that we're keeping our blood sugar levels more stable over time. And therefore ideally keeping our insulin levels more stable over time means that we become, we stay sensitive to the signal. And when we do have carbs in the body, we're able to process them, convert them to energy, you know, move it through the system. And when we don't have a lot of glucose around our insulin levels are nice and low and we can tap into fat burning for energy. And that's that beautiful state of metabolic flexibility but it requires that we don't overload the system day in and day out with these dietary carbohydrates that ultimately will make us um, insulin resistant. So that's kind of the big picture around those things and why there's just a lot of value to zeroing in more on, on understanding how our food is affecting our blood sugar levels.
Okay, next up, we have Dr. Stephen Gundry. We were talking about his new book throughout this entire podcast. And of course, you'll have a link in the show notes to listen to the full episode if you so choose to. And in this clip, he's talking about the value of mitochondrial health. So really building on what Dr. Means is talking about in terms of our ability to take glucose up and create ATP. Of course, that happens in the mitochondria. And we are talking in this clip about how when you have mitochondrial dysfunction, your capacity to produce ATP is going to be attenuated, is going to be lowered. And he talks about some of the different categories of uh, individuals and they're categorized based on their BMI, which for the record, I don't think is the most accurate descriptor because you can have someone who's very muscular and hit that obese, uh, you know, that over 25 uh, pardon me, that over 30 level on the BMI chart. And, um, you know, and they're incredibly muscular, very metabolically healthy. However, uh, it is one of the standards that we use um, among other things. I think context is very important. Whenever you're looking at whether a person is metabolically healthy, you can never really determine it based on their morphology. So you can't really just look at someone and determine, oh, I think this person has insulin dysregulation. However, Dr. Gundry does promote uh, and does cite some studies that suggest that if you are are obese, according to that BMI chart, the likelihood by which you have likely insulin and glucose dysregulation is in, uh, you know, almost undisputable uh, percentages, something in the nineties. And he'll give you the exact uh, quotes when you listen to, uh, when you listen to him, but we also want to be mindful that even in the obese population, it's like North of 90% of our obese population have insulin dysregulation, but we can also see that in our individuals with a healthy BMI as well. And this is why I always like, particularly for my clinicians who I teach and who listen to this podcast, it's very important for us to always keep in mind that even someone who clocks in at a healthy uh, body mass index can also have dysregulation, glucose dysregulation and insulin dysregulation. And Dr. Means and I, in our full podcast, we talked about this stat that 88% of individuals in the United States and Canada are classified as having metabolic dysfunction that are metabolically unhealthy. So by definition, that is also going to include individuals who have a quote unquote healthy BMI. So just because your BMI is in a normal range does not exclude you from the fact that you may have metabolic dysfunction. Okay, so normally the mitochondria can produce ATP using three substrates. Glucose, number one, sugar, uh, amino acids, proteins, and free fatty acids and or ketones. And for the moment, we, we won't differentiate between the two. But normally those would be they'd arrive for processing in the electron transport chain, uh, not simultaneously. Uh, so, but let's suppose we stop eating. Hopefully we stop eating and hopefully we go to sleep about eight hours after normally we stop eating, we would pretty much run out of glucose circulating in our bloodstream. We would pretty much deplete glycogen stores, which are, the storage form of glucose, and we would shift over 
to burning free fatty acids and some ketones for our brain. And these would be liberated from our fat cells as insulin would fall after we stopped eating. So it's very much like a hybrid car. Burn gasoline until the gas tank is empty and we recharge the battery, let's call it our fat stores. And then when the gas tank is empty, we start running on battery power for our fat stores. And the ability to shift from burning sugar or protein to burning free fatty acids should actually happen on a dime as soon as insulin levels fall. But for the vast majority of us, we have what's called insulin resistance. And insulin being elevated prevents free fatty acids from being released from our fat stores. So you could be plenty of fat, nice big fat person, and you could stop eating and you would crash and burn, uh, as so many people do, uh, fasting or eating a ketogenic diet because you actually can't get to all that fat. So the ability to shift from sugar to fat burning virtually instantaneously actually defines great mitochondrial health. And uh, 80% of us are insulin resistant. And in the new book, there's a really scary paper that I uh, quote, 80% of normal weight people are insulin resistant or metabolically inflexible. 98% of overweight people are metabolically inflexible. And 99.5% of obese people are metabolically inflexible. And it's, it's terrifying. Like, it's terrifying. terrifying. Mm. And we wonder why, you know, dementia is you know, the epidemic that it is. We wonder why cancer is the epidemic it is. We wonder why heart disease, blah, 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 why diabetes is. Because these in the end are all really diseases of metabolic inflexibility, of mitochondria, unable to shift between fuels. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Up next, we have Dr. Will Cole, and here we are talking about some of the signs and symptoms of insulin dysregulation. And I talk about this in the Estima Diet. It was lovely to have him reinforce these as well. So things like being hangry, right? Hunger and anger put together equals hangry. So if you are irritable, if you feel yourself getting lightheaded or dizzy, or all you can think about, all you're ruminating about is food, like literally the, you 
you know, after you finish your food within 15 or 20 minutes, you're thinking about your next meal. Um, I think if you have weight loss resistance, so despite, let's say counting calories, despite, you know, working out in whatever capacity that looks like, you're still having a hard time losing weight. This is particularly true for my women in perimenopause and menopause. You may notice that you may be doing the exact same things as you've been doing for the past 20 or 30 years. And then all of a sudden that's no longer serving you, that you continue, you have an inability to lose weight and potentially worse, you are noticing your weight creeping up and up and up and up over time. So Dr. Cole here is going over some of the signs of insulin dysregulation. And these things exist on a spectrum. So by the time somebody's diagnosed with uh, type two diabetes or PCOS or something diagnosable that has that's governed by insulin resistance or even autoimmune issues too, which isn't insulin resistant per se, even though insulin resistance will make flare ups worse. Um, but the problem is by the time someone's diagnosed with these different chronic inflammatory problems, it's about four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis when things were brewing on this inflammation spectrum. So people have to realize not, no matter where you're at on that inflammation spectrum and however that looks like in your life, these things oftentimes don't happen overnight. So I adapted for a, the quiz in the book is adapted from questions that I I ask patients and I want people to take that metabolic flexibility quiz in the book. And we have it at drworldcool.com too. If people just don't have the book and want to take it themselves, but basically it's to show how metabolically flexible they are or aren't. And some good telltale signs are the hangriness is one of them where it's like, if you get really irritable, if you miss a meal, when you eat, if you get really tired afterwards, if you feel like eating, um, takes up more of your mental bandwidth where you're just thinking about the next meal or the next snack. And you're thinking about what you're going to have for, like, it's just like, you're kind of all consumed with it. Um, if you get jittery, uh, shaky, if you miss a meal as well, um, if you have trouble losing weight, if you have low libido, if you're struggling with fatigue issues, um, those are some symptoms that the, there probably is some sort of metabolic inflexibility going on and we have to do something about it. All right. One of our top 10 episodes uh, in the podcast is with Dr. Robert Lustig. We were had him on the show, I believe it was May, for the debut of his book, Metabolical, which is, of course, a beautiful portmanteau between metabolism and diabolical. Very clever name. And in this clip, we are talking about the uh, subcutaneous fat versus our visceral fat, uh, what he likes to call um, when we talk about uh, NAFLD or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. He likes to call that human foie gras, which I think is very cheeky. And then we're also talking about TOFIs and MHO. What is a TOFI? T-O-F-I, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. That is a official term. I think we can probably do better with that. I don't love that terminology. And then we also talk about the metabolically healthy obese or MHO. And this is kind of building on what we were talking about with Dr. Stephen Gundry, that you can absolutely have you can uh, have a, a larger BMI, a larger body shape, but about 20% of the uh, obese population will classify as MHO. So you will be metabolically healthy despite being obese. So you will have normal blood glucose numbers, normal um, uh, insulin, fasting insulin numbers, normal HbA1c, et cetera, normal eight, uh, high sensitivity, sensitivity C-reactive protein markers. So 
the thing I do want you to uh, consider here is we want to be we want to be changing our um, views on judging people by their cover, right? Because he goes on to talk about you know forty percent of those of us who are under uh, a thirty on their BMI will have things, they will have that insulin dysregulation that puts us at a greater risk for hypertension and cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular disease, et cetera. So he makes a, I think, very elegant argument that it's not about behavior. Oftentimes it's very easy for us to, um, to look at someone and make a judgment and say, oh, that person must be lazy. Oh, that person must eat less and move more. We must get them to eat less and move more. This sort of trot, this tired, antiquated um, approach around weight loss. And Dr. Lustig offers a theory that maybe it's not about um, the behavior, but maybe it's about exposure. Because if we have 40% of people under a 30 BMI and 20% of uh, what you would classify as obese, having normal metabolic parameters, perhaps it's not behavior, perhaps it's a matter of exposure. And of course, we talk about uh, in the full episode, we talk about environmental toxicants and we talk about additives in our food sugar, we, uh, in our food uh, supply. We talk about how big food and big pharma are, you know, they're all in bed together all day, every day. And I think that this is a I think it should be required reading, truthfully, anybody who's interested in healthy metabolism and some of the sneaky sugars and some of the ways that we are unnecessarily and unknowingly exposed to some of these, uh, I, I call them sneaky sugars, you know, and they have all these like super sexy names like high fructose corn syrup and, you know, uh, you know, just very, uh, you know, very enticing words that, you know, maybe if you are in the space and you, you know that, you know, high fructose corn syrup is not good for you. Uh, but someone might say, oh, agave, that sounds wonderful, right? It used to be the superfood before until we um, really sort of uh, dismissed it as having just uh, high fructose corn syrup in it. So a very intelligent comment and commentary. The entire podcast is wonderful, but here is Dr. Robert Lustig talking about exposure versus behavior. Well, the thing I want to, uh, point I want to make is that there are actually three separate fat depots, and they contribute differently. And people are all worried about the obvious one, the one you can see, the subcutaneous or big butt fat, if you will, uh, you know, because it's cosmetically undesirable. But from a metabolic standpoint, it's relatively inert. So having a big butt doesn't mean you're sick. There, so 80% of obese people are metabolically ill. They get type two diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, all of these chronic metabolic diseases that are all going up in the general population faster than we can deal with them. That's all true. 80% of obese people have these diseases, but that means that 20% do not. 20% of obese people are metabolically healthy. We actually have a name for them, MHO, metabolically healthy obese. They will live a completely normal life, die at a completely normal age, not cost the taxpayer a dime. They even have normal length telomeres, 
the edges of the chromosomes, the ends that ultimately when they unravel, that causes cellular aging and ultimately that causes human aging and death. They have normal length telomeres, these 20%. So just because you wait more than you should doesn't mean you're sick from it. Conversely, and this is the important part, 40% of the normal weight population, BMI, under 30, have the exact same diseases as do the obese. Normal weight people get hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, diabetes, etc. Now they get it at a lower BMI. Okay, They get it at a lower um, prevalence, 40% rather than 80%. But when you actually do the math, there are actually more thin sick people in America than there are fat sick people. And when you do the math, on, when you do the math on the two of them together, it's more than half the U.S. population. And if normal weight people get it too, how can it be about behavior? This actually looks more like exposure. This looks more like cholera or influenza or tuberculosis or COVID nineteen, for that matter. Um, you know, some people in a in a, in a in a house will get it, and some people won't. So the fact is that. Normal weight people have this problem too. And the reason they have it is not because of the subcutaneous fat. The reason they have it is either because of the visceral fat, the belly fat. And the belly fat only contributes about four to five kilos on the scale, you know, maybe eight to 12 pounds. So that doesn't necessarily put you into the obese range. Or worse yet, the liver fat. And the liver fat only has to rise by about 400 grams, less than a pound. And you definitely can't see that on the scale. So if you, have, if you have a fatty liver, you can be stick thin and still be just as sick as you know somebody who's got a BMI of 45. So it's not the fat you can see that matters. It's the fat you can't. And the problem is most people don't know that. And they don't know if they've got that problem. And there's a name for this. It's called TOFI, T-O-F-I, thin on the outside, fat on the inside, real medical term, 1,500 Medline citations, coined by Dr. Jimmy Bell at University College London. So my question, not to you, but to your audience is, are you a TOFI? How would you know? How could you know? Does your doctor know? If your doctor knows, why isn't your doctor telling you? And if your doctor does know, what would they do about it? How would they fix it? These are the questions that people have to ask themselves, and they can't ask it if they don't understand it. And that's the reason I wrote the book. Up next, we have Dr. Ben Bickman, the author of Why We Get Sick. And in this first clip, we are talking about the different route that fat cells can take. You may have heard that fat cells can, we can have an unlimited amount of them. Uh, Dr. Bickman distinguishes between hyperplasia and hypertrophic fat cells. So hypertrophic means that you you retain the same amount amount of fat cells, they just continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And hyperplasia means that we are creating more and more fat cells. And one of the, um, 
we'll call it culprits of a hyper uh, of hyperplasia in the adipocyte is going to be the exposure to and consumption of seed oils, in particular linoleic acid. So uh, he mentions soybean oil, canola oil, all the vegetable oils, all the things, you know, we're all told vegetables are the best, the best thing you have to consume more vegetables, 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 but not in oil form. And a lot of times we, um, you know, we think maybe we're eating very clean and maybe we have, you know, protein bars on the side when we can. And the, um, most people are consuming soybean oil as the most common fat in their diet. Even, even, you know, and, and, uh, Ben talks about, you know, even people in, in Europe and, uh, the middle East and Asia who might say, oh, this is just like an American thing. This is just like a North American thing. You, you know, lazy fat old North Americans, but not necessarily true. This is absolutely very much a worldwide phenomenon where we are consuming most of our fat being these seed oils, these very unstable, highly oxidizable, uh, seed oils, which will promote, um, uh, which will promote uh, hypertrophy of the fat cell as well. My question to you around that is what is the bifurcation in the road that determines whether someone will engage in hypertrophy of the fat cell where it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, or someone who is, uh, who will have the hyperplasia effect where you're having like the birth of these new cells where Mm -hmm. they get a little bit, a little bit bigger, but nothing, uh, where you're seeing this sort of necrosis or this necrotizing effect on the, on the cell. Yeah, yeah. Great question. So there's undeniably there's a genetic component. There's most certainly uh, something you're born with it, you inherit it. There's this one uh, propensity for one pathway or the other. And again, most people go to the hypertrophic side of the coin. However, there's also um, uh, uh, an environmental component, uh, namely the consumption of seed oils this has been fairly well established in isolated culture of, of fat cells, of, of fat cell cultures, you know, like growing, growing in a Petri dish like we do in the lab, in my lab across the hallway here. When these, when fat cells are exposed to linoleic acid, the omega-6, that uh, fat that most people eat nowadays, and that's coming from soybean oil and canola oil and, you know, all of those refined seed oils, those, that fat, linoleic acid, can accumulate within the fat cell and stop hyperplasia and force hypertrophy. So there is that is an absolutely relevant lifestyle variable. And I, I emphasize it because someone listening to this would think naively, well, I don't eat soybean oil, so it's fine. That's not my problem. You probably do, you unfortunately. You probably do, yeah. Yeah, soybean oil in particular has become the single most common source of fat in the Western diet. And this was well identified in, in through studies at the NIH here in the U S and people want to, people want to kind of throw shade on the U S but I've given talks on this topic literally around the world, including in the middle East and in Asia. And I would bet per calorie, they eat at least as much, of these seed oils than, than, than in the US and in India as well, where there's such an, an eschewing of any animal fats in some instances that ends up shifting very, very powerfully to these seed oils. And tragically, of course, people are told those are healthy. You ought to be cooking with these. But the real truth is, at least in the context of fat cells, that 
individual fat is resulting in fat cells that only grow through hypertrophy. And now you have lit the fuse for insulin resistance. And our second uh, clip with Ben Bickman, so good. We had to pull two from, uh, from my conversation with him was this idea around, um, longevity and restricting protein. Now, this is something that uh, in the podcast, I sort of call out a few scientists. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have, but I did anyway, um, about the fallacy around these blue zones and how uh, many of these blue zones have, um, uh, you know, this, this, long, this longevity paradox. And of course we have, and I'll just name them here. You know, one of the more famous proponents and scientists is Dr. Walter Longo, who talks about protein restriction as a uh, tool for longevity. And I asked Dr. Bickman about this and about how we can reconcile that because from my understanding of the literature and when we look at aging in general, of course, what we know, and I talk about this in the Estima diet, especially phase two of the Estima diet for my perimenopausal and menopausal women, it is so important for that population to be cycling up and down protein because they become more anabolically resistant. Our muscles actually resist the protein bolus more and more as we age. So we actually require more protein as we age to overcome that anabolic resistance that happens in the musculoskeletal system in general. It's both the bones and the muscle. Uh, and often we focus on the muscle because usually what happens in the muscle also happens in the bone as well. And of course, for women, we want strong, healthy muscles. We also want dense bones. One of the things that we always hear about in uh, with women over, over a certain age, let's call it over 45 or 50, is the, uh, the development of and the progression of osteopenia, which is just sort of a thinning of the bone, of course, which leads to osteoporosis, which is a very weak, brittle, uh, unstable bone. If you look at um, an osteoporotic bone on film, if you look at it on x-ray, for example, the uh, depending on the severity of it, it often appears like Swiss cheese. So you will look, normally a nice, dense, healthy bone is going to have uh, the cortex, which is like sort of a, a darker white um, a border. And then the interior uh, lumen, if you will, or the interior of the bone, the cortical bone is should be um, uniform in its presentation. Of course, when you magnify that under, you know, under a mag, you know, under a magnifying glass, of course, that it's not the appearance, but on a film, it should look like that. An osteoporotic bone is going to look like it has teenage acne. There's all these lytic lesions, all these dark black circles, if you will, like Swiss cheese, mo like modeled through the bone. And in order to overcome that, one of the strategies that I've always used with my patients is to increase protein, not only to overcome the anabolic resistance in the muscle, but to also rebalance the osteoblastic to osteoclastic activity in the musculoskeletal system. So osteoblasts are the cells in the bone that 
are trophic that are anabolic that grow. Um, and osteoclasts are the bone are the cells in the bone that break it down. Now there's always going to be a certain amount of bone growth and bone resorption, right? As your bones are consistently remodeling. But one of the things that we know is that as you age, your osteoclastic activity, that bone reabsorption uh, activity will increase relative to your osteoblastic activity. And one of the ways that you can overcome that to continue to have dense bones is of course, weightlifting, which is going to hypertrophy the muscle, but of course the muscles all attached to your bones. So you're going to have an indirect effect of increasing the density of your bones. And then through protein, through a chemical bolus, right? Like through, through, through taking in protein, you are going to stimulate osteoblastic activity. So that trophic bone growth relative to that clastic breakdown. And so I asked Dr. Bickman about this idea of mTOR because you hear we we hear about mTOR it's this growth pathway associated with cancer the big C word. Nobody wants that. You know, we've heard people in the online space talk about how, you know, protein is associated with cancer. And my question to, uh, to Ben was, does this hold true? And I was really happy to hear that he had the same opinion that I did around protein consumption as we age. Um, and that potentially the blue zone, um, uh, you know, the romanticization of these blue zone areas in Loma Lindy in California, in Sardinia, in Okinawa, in Japan, potentially have to uh, do with poor record keeping. So this was uh, really something that I actually had never heard before, before he had said this, but people will fudge the, the records. Like they will lie about their birthday in order to get, whether it's, you know, having people have more interest in, in the, or getting government benefits, et cetera. So poor record keeping. Um, and then, you know, some of the benefits that we've attributed to some of these centenarians and super centenarians cannot exclusively be attributed to protein restriction. Um, a lot of it, I think, has to do with, and if you sort of look at it from a 30,000 foot view, it will be the community aspect that all of these uh, blue zone, I'm using air quotes, blue zone areas have in common, where they have very tight knit families, very tight knit communities. They honor the aged, the, you know, the people who have a greater lived experience. They are honored rather than sort of thrown off, you know, and discarded in society as we can sometimes do in, um, in this Western paradigm that you and I live in. And so we talk about how over the age of 65, humans require more protein. And to sort of put the nail in the coffin in the, with this idea of mTOR activation, absolutely protein activates mTOR. So nobody's saying that that doesn't happen. But the degree to which protein activates mTOR relative to carbohydrates is something that I think has been absolutely over uh, overlooked and potentially uh, misread. Uh, carbohydrates will stimulate mTOR, which is this growth pathway, uh, far more robust than a, um, uh, than protein uh, will. So uh, with that in mind, please enjoy uh, my little uh, conversation here with Dr. Ben Bickman. I very much oppose the sentiment that protein is an inducer of aging because of its act activation of mTOR. And so first of all, there was a recently published study challenging the validity of any of the conclusions from blue zone diets and actually pointing the finger at poor 
record keeping in these countries where people were wrong about their birth date, that in some instances were lying about their birth date in order to um, exploit government benefits and retirement. So uh, that's the first thing that there is legitimate, a legitimate challenge to what we think blue zones, blue zones really are. And it could simply be uh, people fudging the books or cooking the books, but be that as it may, um, the focus has um, shifted to mTOR. Because mTOR is a protein that will stim- will basically block autophagy because it only wants the cell to be growing, which will, in rodent models and in insect models like fruit flies, the evidence does indeed suggest that if you can tap down mTOR, the animal will live longer. And because dietary protein does acutely stimulate mTOR up and down, um, people have thought, well, then let's avoid protein. There's one enormous problem, in fact, multiple, two, they'll say two conclusions. One, the data itself in humans don't support that conclusion, where even um, that same group, the Longo group, uh, and and I I hate to kind of diss another scientist, so I I do mean to say this with um, respect, but even he would admit that at the age of 65, we see this inverse relationship where at the age of 65, people that are eating the least amount of protein have the highest mortality. Well, to me, in my perhaps naive, ignorant mind, that blows the whole idea apart. If you look at people that are 65, which, let's admit that's not that old. After the age of 65, the people eating the most protein are the more robust, longer lived. Well, then that to me challenges the whole idea that the whole paradigm that it's protein, which is activating mTOR, which is promoting longevity, that seems to blow that apart. But coming back to the mTOR idea, if mTOR is relevant, then I would say what is resulting in the incessant chronic activation of mTOR and it comes back to insulin. Insulin activates mTOR higher than protein. Even leucine, the most anabolic of all amino acids, does not activate mTOR as much as insulin does. And that is so relevant, I contend, because we have given people this asinine advice to eat six meals a day and that carbohydrates should be the bulk of all of that food. And so the person wakes up and finally overnight their insulin has come down. And what do they do? They eat two bowls of cereal or a bagel or, you know, even worse potentially. And it spikes up their insulin dramatically. And it starts to take, it starts to come down around two hours or so. And of course they have to have a mid-morning snack, which bumps it back up. Then it's lunchtime and on and on throughout the day where every waking moment and even into the night, is spent in a state of elevated insulin and insulin is pushing the gas pedal on mTOR. It's not the protein, which will have a transient increase in mTOR and down and thank heavens that it does because to your point earlier, we need that anabolic boost. We need that anabolic stimulus. Otherwise we'd have no lean mass whatsoever or anything indeed. So uh, we cannot look at mTOR as a villain, just like we can't look at insulin as nothing but a villain. And I don't, I don't try to, or I don't want someone to think that I'm saying that, but nevertheless, if mTOR is a key variable in aging, and there's no evidence in humans to support that, but it's probably true. We just can't really do aging studies in humans um, very well and, and, or at all perhaps, but if mTOR is the culprit, then all the more reason to keep the focus on insulin, not protein, because if for no other reason, we need amino acids. There are such things as essential amino acids. We must eat them to survive. The insulin spiking carbohydrates, 
They may be wonderful and they can be certainly a part of a healthy diet, but they are not essential. There's nothing essential about dietary carbohydrates. So why have that be the basis or the foundation of our diet? I think it's it's foolish. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.